You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body ailment, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could present with you, I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of your word, and we pray, Father, that you'd be pleased to bless us with understanding this morning, and more so than understanding, but Father, you would also, Lord, apply your word to our hearts, Lord, as we make application as we go along, Father. Help us to align our hearts with the truths that you have uh, put here and placed here and recorded for us and preserved for us, that, Father, we would grow in our Christ-likeness. We pray these things for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we begin, and this morning, really, largely, I'm going to spend a lot of my time really explaining these verses, and I just want to say, as a matter of housekeeping, before we get into much of this, that the overall message here is pretty clear of what Paul is saying However, some of the details, that's another matter, and we'll, we'll get to those in our place. We'll see that some of these details aren't quite so clear. And there's a lesson in that as well, and we'll treat that as we go along. But one of the things, and, and, and here's a thought that I would really like to get into our minds, I think, as we start working through explaining these things. Um, and I started thinking along these lines. I'm indebted to uh, Frank Thielman, who's written a commentary on Galatians. And his commentary is part of the... Um, ESV Expositor's Commentary. Some of you are familiar with that. And I know many of you have asked me, um, could I recommend a commentary uh, series on this or a commentary on this particular book or that particular book? And these ESV commentaries are really good. And, um, you know, when you purchase them, you oftentimes get more than one book um, at a time. You know, some of them will have quite a few, especially the New Testament commentaries, they'll have quite a few books. So um, they're available digitally. You can get them. That's how I, I got them when Crossway had that sale. I think I got all these for $3.99 a piece, I think. Um, but I've been using them now long enough that, boy, they're pretty good. And Frank Thielman, one of the, one of the you know, I'm kind of pitching off one of the things that he said in regards to this text, you know. I'm pitching off of him to say this, how should we respond when doctrinal disagreement puts a strain on our relationship with fellow believers? Let me say that again. How should we we respond when doctrinal disagreement puts a strain in our relationship with fellow believers? Let me put that in other words. How do we respond 
uh, when we disagree about important matters of the faith, especially when some of these matters, you know, I mean, we could be disagreeing about, you know, what color we're going to paint the walls in the in the uh, children's room. That's one thing. But what about when we're disagreeing over primary issues? You know, how do we respond to one another? Um, I just kind of want to get our minds thinking about that as we as we look at what the apostle is doing here. Now, looking down to verse 12 here again, notice Paul begins uh, by saying brothers. And if you've got an ESV open, you'll notice there's a footnote there. And of course, you follow the footnote down to the margin and you'll discover that it says brothers and sisters. And that's because the word that Paul's using, Adelphoi, uh, can be translated brothers and sisters. And I, I want to point this out. Paul's speaking to the Galatians. He's speaking to all the believers, uh, both male and female here. And before we go any further, notice what an endearing term Paul's using. You know, his, his tone throughout uh, Galatians has varied somewhat, but oftentimes it's been, it's been pretty authoritative, hasn't it? Uh, it's been strong. And here, Paul begins really by, by, uh, with, with his endearing words. You know, this is like he's saying brothers and sisters here. And Paul is switching gears. He's been argue, arguing um, intensely theologically and intensely exegetically. What do I mean by exegetically? He's, he's throwing out allusions and throwing out Scripture passages such as Genesis 15.6, Genesis 12.3, Leviticus 18.5, Deuteronomy 27.26. We've spent a lot of time going through all those passages, and he's throwing these passages of Scripture out there, and he's drawing the meaning of those passages, which is what exegesis means, is to draw the meaning out of. He's drawing the meaning out of those passages, and he's applying those passages to the situation in Galatia. And what is the situation in Galatia? The situation in Galatia is the Galatians are turning their backs on the gospel, aren't they? And it's, it's really slippery, isn't it? It's like they're not renouncing Christ. That would be really easy. They're not just saying, you know, we followed him for a little while and we've decided that it's a farce and we're not following it anymore. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're adding a plus sign, if you will, to the gospel, and that's where it becomes a little it becomes a little bit slipperier, doesn't it? So what are they saying? Well, they're saying that okay, faith in Christ, all parties agree that you have to have faith in Christ. Okay, so you have to have faith in Christ. But here's where the problem is coming in. You have to have faith in Christ and uh, the problem is with the and and you have to be circumcised and you need to follow these dietary laws. And as we've said many times through the course of this study, what else are we going to add on to that? Because as soon as you start adding things on to that, where do you stop? And the Apostle Paul says, no, no. When we look to the cross and we see Jesus suffering there and we hear him say it is finished, we need to be mindful and we need to get in our minds right now that the gospel tells us that it really is finished. What is finished? Salvation is accomplished for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. I could put it another way that perhaps is more clear. Jesus takes us 100% of the way there. And this is a really important, I'll tell you, this is a really important message for us, not just today, but throughout every generation of church history. When you look at you, when you put, the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're made as holy as you're ever going to be right there in that instant. And someone say, what? You're made as holy as you're ever going to be in that instant. In one sense, well, so wait a second, we still keep on sinning and we have to repent of our sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, this holiness can be looked at in two ways. 
In the eyes of God, what does God see when he looks at someone who has put and placed their faith and trust in Christ? What he sees is a sinner, a former sinner, if you will, who is now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That can't be improved upon. Jesus' holiness and righteousness cannot be improved upon. It's almost hard for us to get our minds around something that can't be improved upon, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing in our lives save Christ's righteousness if we're in Christ. There's nothing else in our lives that can't be improved upon. You think of the best day you ever had, you can still conceive of ways it could have been a better day. So it's really kind of hard for us. But the message of the gospel is the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are given a righteousness. It's not ours, it's His. You're given a righteousness that's credited to you, and it's a righteousness that can't be improved upon. You're 100% of the way there. So now, when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of his son. There's To add something on top of that is to degrade what Jesus has done. That's why Paul can say to add to the gospel is to begin to turn your back on the one who has called you in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? We've been over this from a lot of different angles, haven't we, over the, uh, the last how many weeks? Paul's been arguing theologically. He's been arguing exegetically. Exegetically meaning he's arguing from Scripture. And what's interesting here in verse 12 is now he's going to argue emotionally. This really is an emotional argument. It's a highly personal argument that Paul is sitting down and having here. Um, today we might say that Paul's having a real heart-to-heart talk with the Galatians in this particular passage. And he begins with these endearing words, brothers and sisters. And then what's he say next? I entreat you. Uh, that's a strong term, and, and it could be translated, I beg you. And what's interesting about that term is it's the first command that Paul's given in the letter. He's yet to give a command. He is yet to tell the Galatians to do something. This is the first time he said, wow, we're all the way out in chapter 4 before he has given a command. Yes, we're all the way out in chapter 4. In fact, we're halfway through chapter 4. And Paul there gives this command. He says, I entreat you. Okay, what is he calling the Galatians to do? Become as I am. What does that mean? Uh, Paul is in all likelihood, I think, uh, pointing to uh, the fact that he is no longer endorsing justification through law-keeping, which is something Paul would have, that would have probably been the most natural thing for Paul to do. Why? Because he was a Pharisee. You think about how much of his adult life, and for that matter, how much of his life from childhood was spent law-keeping. What do I mean by law-keeping? Basing his relationship with God on his personal performance of keeping God's commandments. That's what I mean by law-keeping. It's really one of the most natural things for us to do. I've used the illustration of going and knocking on the door, you know, and asking what we call the EE question to people. You know, if you were to die today and you were to go before God and he was to say, why should I let you uh, into my kingdom? You ask people that. I've done that. I've been doing this for years. You ask people that question and they will almost always, nine times out of ten, point to some kind of personal performance. They'll say something like, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I've always tried to fill in the blank. And God is at the end of the day going to look at my performance. He's going to see that on the seesaw of it all, you know, my good's going to outweigh my bad. That's a works-based system. That's where we're at. Uh, here, though, they're not arguing for a completely works-based system. 
That's where it gets slippery. They're arguing, oh, you've got to put your faith and trust in Christ. There's no question about that. But what they're saying is that doesn't get you all the way there. Now, you know, when you start thinking of it this way and you start thinking, especially of your prayer life and start thinking of, think about some of your worst days when you've blown it on. This is when it affects me the most is when, you know, on my worst days when, you know, especially usually at the end of the day and you're reviewing, all right, Rick, what would you like today? Oh, I'm glad few people saw it. And how quickly we can go into that performance mode again. The Lord must be, he must be scorning. He must be frowning at us. He must not be happy with us today. How quickly we are back into that performance mode. That's why it's so important to, um, to keep these texts in mind. He says, brothers, sisters, I entreat you, become as I am. Paul has left his law keeping for justification. What do I mean by justification? Being able to stand in God's presence. It's like on those bad days when we're praying, it's almost like we forget. Guess what? Okay, you've had a bad day. Okay, you've done a lot of stuff. But you could never stand in God's presence based on your performance anyways. You can only stand in God's presence because of what Christ has done in your place. How quickly we forget that and go back into performance mode, do we not? Am I the only one? I see some heads going, oh, I didn't have a sneaking suspicion I was the only one. Listen, when I say that, I, I, it's not misery looking for company here. I would be really happy if I was the only one doing this. But I just know all too well that I'm not the only one doing this. Quite frankly, we probably all do this, don't we? That's why we need this message. Become as I am, Paul says. Notice what he says next in verse 12. For I also have become as you are. Now, what Paul's talking, what's he talking about there? He's pointing to a principle, and that's why we read from 1 Corinthians 9. Um, if you turn back there again, keep your place in Galatians, because I want to develop that principle a little bit. Um, keep your place in Galatians and turn back to 1 Corinthians 9 um, to where we were uh, earlier in the service. That'd be, uh, I'm going to start on page 956. I'll just do a little bit of context of those passages there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, which is on page 956 if you're using the church's Bible. Paul says there, he, he, he starts this by saying, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Verse 3, he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we have the right to eat and drink? Do we have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Uh, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Paul here is speaking about his Christian liberty, if you will. And if you go down to verse 12, halfway through verse 12, Paul says, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. So Paul's talking about his Christian liberty. Now he's talking about how he set his Christian liberty aside. For what purpose? He goes, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So what Paul is doing, he's getting ready to develop a principle here where he takes his Christian liberty and he sets it aside. Why is he set it aside? So it would not become an obstacle to the sharing of the gospel to other people. You know, and in doing this, he's giving us an example. And quite frankly, I think this is one of the reasons why we don't see as many conversions in the United States as we do. We're always crying about our rights. We're always crying about our, you know, this is my right. This is what I deserve. This is this. This is this. This is this. And of course, that is filtered and is alive and well in the church. And one of the stinging indictments that I think we get when we come to passages like this is, have we been willing to set our, our, our rights aside for the benefit of those who are around us? Have we been willing to do that? 
Now, if you look down to verse 19, Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Now, I don't know who coined this phrase, but it's a really, it's, it's maybe one you might want to, you, you might want to think about and meditate, maybe even write down. Um, I, I don't know where it originated. Uh, maybe some of you have heard this before, but only a free man or only a free woman can make themselves a servant. It, how many have heard that before? No one's heard that for good. You have to be free in order to make yourself a servant. And Paul says here, though I am free. How has he been made free? He's been made free in Christ. I'm free from all, but I've made myself a servant to all. For what purpose? That I might win more of them. Verse 19, you see that? His purpose is for winning souls for the gospel. Why? Why is he so concerned about that? For Christ's glory, for starters, for God's glory, for starters, but also for the benefit of the people who are going to be one for Christ, right? This is really dear to my heart, as you well know. I, I love to share the gospel, and I, I do. I have a burden for those who are lost uh, in our culture. If you look at verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. You know, it's like, okay, what does all that mean? Well, we're just going to give the skinny on it because for sake of time. And I think we can do that by doing a review at the same time. For those of you who have been in this um, series in Galatians for a while, let's think back when we were all the way back in, in Galatians 2. And Paul was talking about one of his visits in Jerusalem, and he said he had a man by the name of Titus with him. You remember that? And he, he takes, you know, he's, he's recalling this. He has taken Titus down to Jerusalem. He's introduced Titus to the apostles there. And his point is the apostles received him as a brother in the Lord, even though he was uncircumcised. And that was a powerful argument, if you will. You know, they're arguing that in order to get 100% of the way there, you have to have faith in Christ plus circumcision. And what Paul's saying, wait a second. I had Titus with me in one of my visits to Jerusalem, and he, the right hand of fellowship was extended to him, and he was uncircumcised. This isn't something that's peculiar to me. This is what is believed by the apostles in Jerusalem as well. It's a very powerful argument. And when we were looking at those passages, you may remember that I took us to Acts 16. And what's pertinent, what's relevant in Acts 16 is... We're told in Acts 16 that Paul does circumcise Timothy because of the Jews. You remember that? Some of you are saying, yeah. And I, back then I said, you know, this might be something that Paul's agitators were saying about Paul. They might have been saying, Paul's got a few things going on. He's right about a few things, but he is wishy-washy on circumcision. Sometimes he circumcises, sometimes he doesn't circumcise. He's just, you, you, you can only trust him to a point. You can almost hear the agitator saying that about the Apostle Paul. Well, we might even think in our own day, people will talk about how Scripture can't be trusted because there's contradictions. Someone might say, well, wait, isn't there a contradiction? I mean, why doesn't Paul circumcise Titus? Why does he argue forcefully against circumcising Titus, yet he freely circumcises Timothy? And there's three things important in understanding that. What are they? Context? What are the other two? Context, context. You know, there's really three, you know, when we think about this, let's think about this from three different contexts, if you will. 
One context would be for salvation. I thought about what to call each one of these. I think that's the clearest thing, for salvation. Think about another context would be for winning others to the gospel or removing obstacles. Another one would be fellowship. Okay, let me explain. In Galatians 2, Paul refuses to circumcise Titus because we're told in that context that there were others who slipped in to spy out their freedom. You remember that verse? And they were, they were arguing, circumcised Titus. And Paul refused to do it. Why did he refuse to do it? Because in that context, salvation was hanging. When it comes down to matters of salvation, if, if, if people are saying circumcised because you've added a plus sign to the gospel and you're adding circumcision to the gospel formula, then Paul's going to say, no way. Absolutely not. He's going to fight tooth and nail. We will not circumcise under those conditions. But when you turn to Acts 16 and you see what's going on with with Timothy there, they're getting ready to evangelize in Jewish circles. And here Timothy is uncircumcised, and that's going to create a lot of obstacles. So Paul, it really, Timothy's the one who kind of, does does Timothy have to be circumcised to have a right standing with God? Absolutely not. So why does he undergo the pain of circumcision? It's because he's willing, to be a ser- he's willing to be a servant. He's willing to suffer for the benefit of other people. They just want to remove all unnecessary obstacles as they go and reach out in these Jewish circles. Do you see the difference there? It's huge. Now, if I might just step on a side, this is kind of an aside here, but we can also speak about the context of fellowship. You know, in, in, in Galatians 2, we had that story where Peter comes into Antioch and he's, he's enjoying fellowship with everybody. You remember that story? He's enjoying fellowship with everybody. And then all of a sudden, this party comes up from Jerusalem, the circumcision party. And Peter begins to, he begins to shy away, doesn't he? You know, he was, you know, he was in the middle of everything. And then these folks show up. Now he doesn't, doesn't act like he wants to eat with us anymore. And what does Paul do? Paul calls him on it, doesn't he? He calls him on it. What is Peter doing? Well, Peter's building a wall back up between the Jew and the Gentile, a wall that that, that, that salvation brings down. It's a wall that the gospel brings down. And, I, you know, here this becomes a, a matter of fellowship, doesn't it? We can't have fellowship no more. This is affecting our fellowship. Now, with all of this in mind, let me just remind you of the statement that I brought up at the beginning. How should we respond when disagreements about doctrine put a strain on our relationship? I just throw that out there again. Let's keep that working in our minds. And we'll put that together here in a few minutes. Notice back to 1 Corinthians 9. Let's look at verse 21. Notice Paul says, okay, he says in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Okay, we see that in Acts 16. Timothy gets circumcised, becomes as a Jew, if you will, so that they can evangelize Jews in that particular uh, context. But in verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. Now, this is undoubtedly what Paul would have done as he went into Galatia to the Gentiles there. Go back again with me to Galatians 4, and I think this will become clear. Paul says, brothers, in verse 12, sisters, verse 12, I entreat you, or I beg you, become as I am. That is, uh, giving up this law-keeping for justification, become as I am, for I also has, have become as you are. 
Now, when Paul would have went into Galatia, he wouldn't have went into Galatia as a, a strict Orthodox Pharisee who's going to tithe 10% of his salad dressing. That would have set up, that would have set up major barriers to, uh, to his ability to evangelize the Gentile Galatians, right? No, Paul would have went in and he would have, listen, he would have ate hot dogs at our camp. You know, he would have come by and he would have had a hot dog after church with us. Uh, why? It's contextualization. Why? Because those kosher laws are no, those kosher laws are filled, fulfilled in Christ. Paul doesn't have a problem with you keeping those kosher laws. But what's he doing? He's becoming, he's becoming as the Gentiles are. It doesn't mean that he's sinning as the Gentiles do. It means he's becoming as a, what's he trying to do? He's trying to contextualize uh, himself so that he can share the gospel. Let me give you an illustration, because by the looks on your face, maybe I'm not being super, super clear. Maybe this illustration will help you. Many of you know the seminary that I studied in. It's a seminary uh, that um, advocates for exclusive psalmody, non-instrumental worship, right? You've heard me speak about that. And I heard those arguments over, and I love those folks. And they really extended a lot of love to me. I mean, as I got close to graduating, there were a couple of empty pulpits, and they really, I mean... Um, I candidated at one of them just because it would probably have been offensive not to. And I, if God would have been calling me to serve in one of those churches, I could have sang psalms. I'm fine with singing psalms. I could have done it if it was clear that that's what God wanted me to do. However, I don't agree with the arguments that all we, obviously, we, we, we do sing psalms here uh, from time to time, and we do sing them without the accompaniment of instruments. And that's their thing. It's, it's known as exclusive psalmody. They only sing psalms in worship. This is in worship. And they do so just with their voice. They only sing. They do not use musical accompaniment. No piano, no guitar, none of that. Um, let's suppose, and I want to do this one of these days. Let's suppose we call up the seminary and we say, you know, um, we need a speaker for whatever Sunday. And we have someone come down who is a member of the RPCMA. Okay, you know what I think would be really cool if we do that? And I think we should do that some, one of these Sundays coming up sometime in the near future. I think it would be really cool for you to just to sing psalms that Sunday. Because that's a deep conviction of the speaker. Um, in doing that, we're not relinquishing our convictions that I don't think we're sinning if we, if we sing what a friend we have in Jesus. I think it's Okay. And um, obviously, a few weeks ago, I, I was in here trying to get us through some hymns on my guitar, and I, I didn't think it was sinful for me to do that. But my brothers do think that that activity is sinful. They do. That's what they believe. So this would be a way where we would set our rights aside, if you will, uh, for the benefits of others. That's what's going on here. This is what Paul's pointing to. This is what he has done. And if you go back to verse 12 with me, and that's the Galatians 4, verse 12, you notice he says, you did me no wrong. What does that mean? I think it becomes clear as we read along. He says, you know, it was because of a body, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, what this bodily ailment is, let me just say it this way. We don't know. Okay? That's the best answer that you can offer on this. Remember I said the overall message here is clear, but some of the details, not so much. I can tell you what some of the commentaries will say. They'll say, well, it's the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, some will say it's malaria. You know, Paul had malaria. 
Uh, Some will say, if you look down to verse 15, notice Paul says there, I testify to you that if possible, you'd have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So some will say, well, there must have been a problem with his eyes. And that sounds attractive. That sounds almost foolproof until you begin to study verse 15. We're going to get to that here in a minute. I'll save it for that place. But what I want to say right now is, I don't think we know. I think it's been lost to us. And and I don't think the point of this passage is to send us on some kind of expedition to try to find it out. Um, That that old aphorism, keep the the plain things the main things, is really helpful here. We're going to spend a lot of time uh, getting sidetracked and missing the, the point that Paul is trying to make here. The point that Paul's making here is that it was because of a bodily ailment that he preached the gospel. What that bodily ailment was, we don't know. What we do know is a bodily element. And there, there's others. If you look at the commentaries, there's others that say there was a result of persecution that Paul uh, underwent. You know, we know at one point he was stoned. They chucked rocks at him until they thought he was dead and they left him there. And it is really possible if you're getting hit in the head with rocks. I mean, many of you are in the medical community. It's possible to lose your eyesight that way, right? And maybe he partially lost his eyesight as a result of one of those rocks hitting him in the head or multiple rocks hitting him in the head. Or maybe it left scars on his head that deformed his face. Um, we, don't, we just don't know. These are all possibilities, but I don't think we ought to be dogmatic about any of them. We don't know. Here's what we do know. It was because of a bodily ailment that Paul preached the gospel to them. Maybe because he was laid up and it gave him time to spend the gospel with them, perhaps, But look at verse 14. He says, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Well, what's that all about? Well, it was widely believed in in antiquity that if something really bad happened to you, it must have been because you've sinned against God or sinned against the gods. We find that in the book of Job, don't we? With Job's counselors coming along. You know, Job's in a terrible mess. And it's inconceivable to his friends. He must be hiding something. He must have sinned some way against God, and he's not coming clean with it. And they, they try to tug it out of him there for how many chapters? Uh, you go to the New Testament, and you discover that this was a, a belief held by the disciples too. You know, they ask. They see a man born blind, and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? Jesus says neither. And even when Paul's on the island of Malta in Acts 28, You know, it's cold and raining, so they start a fire. Paul throws some brush on the fire, and a serpent, a poisonous serpent, comes out and bites him on the hand, right? Some of you know that story. And what do the islanders do? They look, and they're like, ooh, he must be a murderer. For this to have happened to him, he must be a murderer. And then they're watching him really closely, waiting for his hand to swell up and waiting for him to die. And when neither happened, they switched gears. They say, he must be a god. Now, this was widely believed, and, and Paul, Paul, of course, is aware of this, and he says, though my condition was a trial to you. What condition? Whatever this bodily ailment was. They could have said, look at Paul. He's a mess. He must be under the curse of God or under the curse of the gods. We shouldn't listen to him. That's what he's making reference to here. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me. The word scorn could be translated spit out. You did not spit me out. And the purpose of spitting out would be to spit out to avoid a curse or to spit out to avoid um, some kind of bad omen or bad thing happening to you. That's the word choice that Paul uses there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his point is, even though I was a mess and you could have concluded that I was under the curse of God, you didn't reject me. 
You didn't despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. You see, he's having a heart-to-heart here. He's pointing back to them and saying, you remember when I came? You could have rejected me. You could have easily rejected me, but you didn't. You received my message as if an angel had brought it to you. In fact, you received my message as if Jesus himself had preached it to you. Verse 15, what then has become of the blessing you felt? What blessing? I think that becomes clear as we keep reading. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, some take this that Paul had a problem with his eyes, and the purpose of of gouging the eyes out would be to give him their eyes. It's just a metaphorical expression. Um, However, this phrase was often used in antiquity to describe sacrificial love, where a person would say to another person to try to describe how much they love them. They could say, I love you so much that I would gouge my eyes out and give them to you. That was an expression that was used that way. So I I don't think we can take this to necessarily mean Paul had a problem with his eyes. Keep the plain things, the main things. What is plain here? Paul's taking them back. You remember when I spent all those weeks with you sharing the gospel, you loved me so much you would gouge your eyes out and give them to me. You received me as an angel. You received me as Christ Jesus himself. What happened to the blessing that you felt? That would have been the love. Paul's having a heart-to-heart here, you see? Remember the love, harmony that we had with each other. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's painful, isn't it? We Probably many of us have been there, haven't we? Where you've had to endure, at least for a time, or maybe, a, maybe right now you're in one of those times, where you've been forced to tell somebody the truth, and they weren't ready to hear that truth yet. And how did they react? Rather than dealing with that truth... They now count you as an enemy, or at least the, the harmony that you've experienced with them has been broken. That's painful, isn't it? You know, how many have been through that? You can see all kinds of heads. Yeah, I know. It's painful. I know. And, and we're going to see. Paul's going to continue to talk about this pain. In verse 17, he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. What are they doing? They're trying to pry the Galatians away from Paul. And and prying him away from Paul, what are they doing? They're prying them away from the gospel. And as they pry them away from the gospel, they're prying them away from Christ. And as they pry them away from Christ, they're prying them them away from all the blessings that they have in Christ. This is how you need to evaluate. You know, this week I've been asked several questions about different pastors. Is this pastor all right? Is that pastor all right? Is this pastor all right? And it just occurred to me just now that one of the ways you can tell it is, is including myself, include myself in this, is he drawing you nearer to Jesus or is he prying you away from Jesus? You know, ask that question because these, these agitators are prying them away from Jesus. They're false teachers. They're prying them away from Jesus. They're, 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 these, the, the Galatian church is at risk right now of being shut off from the gospel, aren't they? That's what's at hand here. Now, why are they doing this? Paul gives us their motive here. He says it's that they want the Galatians to make much of them. This is common as the cold. For people in leadership build kingdoms, they build empires, and those empires are centered around personalities, they're centered around, they're centered around these speakers, they're centered around these leaders. That goes on in every generation, doesn't it? And we need to be aware of it. 
If you look at verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. You look at that verse, you say, what in the world does that mean? That is hard, isn't it? Uh, You'll look at a verse like that almost cross-eyed. I'm going to share a a, uh, paraphrase of that verse that I find to be so helpful. This is from F.F. Bruce, who was an outstanding scholar in a previous generation. Um, Paraphrasing towards the end of verse 17 and verse 18, he writes this, it is always good to be courted with honorable intentions as you were courted by me. That would be Paul when I was present with you. But as it is, no sooner has my back been turned than you let someone else come and court you with dishonorable intentions. I can read that again. It's always good to be courted with honorable intentions as you were courted by me when I was present with you. What Paul's saying is when I came to Galatia, I preached the gospel to you. And I had good intentions. That was leading you to Jesus. Continuing with the quote, but as it is, no sooner has my back been turned. Okay, Paul leaves, and we've been over this, right? As soon as Paul leaves Galatia, in comes these other teachers, right? Okay, no sooner has my back been turned on you, then you let someone else come and court you with dishonorable intentions. That's what Paul's saying in verse 18. Verse 19, my little children, there's another endearing term. You see, he's having a heart-to-heart with them. And he says, my little children, whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth. In the anguish of childbirth. Now, you moms know all about that. You know more about that than us, the rest of us do, right? I'm not going to pretend to know anything about that. But it's a figure that Paul's using here, isn't it? You know, he's talking about the anguish, the anguish that he has until Christ is formed in them. It's almost as if Paul's right back to the beginning. When Paul went in and preached the gospel to him, and those, those of you who are active in sharing your faith are probably going to relate to this. When you've talked with somebody for a while and they're right on, the, right on the edge of coming to Christ, you know, they're just right on the edge there. You do experience a lot of anguish for them. You do. I mean, you can't sleep. You, you're praying constantly. Sometimes you pray fervently, you pray intensely. Lord, bring them home, bring them home. Because what do you want to see them do? You want to see them come and make, and make this profession of faith. And this is what Paul's talking about. You know, why is Paul like this? Because he really cares. You're not going to be very good at sharing the gospel if you don't care about people. You've got to really care. And because Paul cares, here he's, he's, he's describing it as anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. One, um, one scholar says this. He says, Greek speakers of Paul's time commonly used the term translated form to refer, refer to the forming of a child in the mother's womb. Greek, guess, Greek speakers of Paul's time commonly used the term translated form to refer to the forming of a child in a mother's womb. That's how he's using this, till Christ is formed in you. Till Christ is formed in you. What does he mean by that? Until, until such time as you begin to look like Christ. Until such time that you begin to embrace Christ. Until such time as you begin to profess faith. Until such times that the eyes are truly open and the ears are unstopped. That's a beautiful thing when it happens, isn't it? When someone comes to faith in Christ, we're told that all of heaven rejoices over that. Paul's experiencing this anguish. In verse 20, probably the easiest verse in the whole passage, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. That's quite easy. Now, back to where we started, and I know explaining this, some of you be like, whoa, what in the world? I know. It's not an easy passage to get through, is it? 
I wanted to take time and explain all these things um, about it, but let's go back to where we started. How should we respond when disagreement about doctrine puts a strain on our relationship with each other? I mean, how should we respond? Paul's leading the way here, isn't he? He's leading the way. You know, with this heart-to-heart, I think one of the things we could do really, and one of the reasons I wanted to try to explain it as best of my ability, is so that we could look over this again this afternoon, and we could look at this tomorrow, and we could look at this the next day, and we could look at this the next day, because right now, we're in a position in our culture where we're being highly manipulated, highly manipulated. You know, I don't talk about politics much unless I'm up with my family Friday night, you know, over at mom and dad's, you know, I'm pretty freely talking about politics. I don't do that anywhere else but there. Generally speaking, I rarely talk about politics because I want to use all my capital for the gospel. So I don't really say anything, but I do have opinions. And we're so, we're so manipulated right now that if you criticize one president, for example, you're automatically means that you're 100% for another one. That is such a logical mess. Just because I criticize person A doesn't mean I fully endorse person B. How could we ever come to a conclusion like that if we haven't been so manipulated? And that's where we are. And another thing, too, there's a lot of people, and it doesn't matter what station you turn on to, you've got these stars. Newscasters are stars now. It's because they're not really casting news anymore. They're in the entertainment business. And they're making millions and millions of dollars. And, one of the, and what they care about is ratings. And one of the ways to get your ratings up is to get you stirred up into a mess. You know, listen, the Lord finds that abominable. How do we know that? Because the Lord finds it abominable when we stir up strife. They get paid millions of dollars. I don't care who they are. They're getting paid millions of dollars to stir up strife. And they got us so worked up that the moment we disagree with one another, we're now all of a sudden enemies with one another. You can't have debate anymore. We've got, to figure, we've got to figure out a way to get around that. We can't, if we bump into somebody that we disagree with, don't make them an enemy. Don't, like, we, we've got to, I mean, you've really got to work hard because this, this is the manipulation that's going on right now. Let me read this statement again. How should we respond when disagreement puts a strain on our relationship? Paul's showing us the way. I mean, obviously, the first thing we need to respond with is love. Love for the person you're talking to because they're an image bearer of our Lord. That's what we've got to focus on, right? I think it's probably a good time to probably call it a day. What do you think? Because all agreed with that. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Father, and we praise you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your word, which... Sometimes, as in the case of our passage this morning, there's a lot of details about our passage, Father, that I think are lost to us. We, we don't know what the bodily ailment was that caused um, Paul to preach the gospel in Galatia, and there's other details there that, Father, we, don't, we just don't know. But, Father, we see the clear messages. Paul's having a heart-to-heart with the people in Galatia. And, Father, we know that he's having this heart-to-heart because he's defending the gospel But, Father, we also know that he's not doing this just so he can be the one who's right in the argument. He's doing this because he loves people that he's writing to. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased um, to bless us in such a way, Father, that we would give up caring who wins the argument. But instead, Father, we'd be found loving people who are around us, Lord. 
Uh, we, we do not um, claim to have any kind of uh, perfection in this, Lord. Uh, I know I need lots of work in this area myself, Father. We pray, O oh Lord, you would work in our hearts, Lord, so that when we have disagreements, whether they be in politics or whether they be in, whether they be in theology or wherever they might be, Father, that we would find ourselves, Lord, extending the love of Christ to one another, reflecting the love of Christ to one another, that, Father, we might, might and we would be found to set our, our rights aside, that we might serve those, O oh Father, so that we could take away the obstacles of the gospel that we might win, uh, our, um, our uh, relatives and our neighbors and our friends, oh, Father, for you. So, Lord, work these graces in our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.